What a blessing it is to sing about the wonders of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Considering how unique and holy Jesus is, he is absolutely worthy of our attention. We have every reason to meditate on his nature and his character. And I'm so glad that we've been doing that through this holiday season. Christmas time is one of the uh, best times to think about Christ as Lord. It, everyone in the world is uh, basically thinking about it. It's, it's floating around in people's minds. And so uh, we like to capitalize that during the month of December and, and put our minds and, and thoughts on the nature and character of Jesus Christ. And we sing songs, especially exalting Jesus in his great nature. We just sang a familiar lyric uh, that we've been accustomed to over the years, which starts like this. What child is this? who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. This opening verse frames the question that every human being must ask themselves and answer over the course of their time here on earth. Who is this Jesus? Is he who he says he is? Do I have reasons to trust him? to put my faith in Him, and to follow after Him. <clears throat> the chorus of the song serves as an answer to that question which is put forth right at the beginning of this carol. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring Him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Yes, this is more than just any other person. While Jesus was born into this world, world through humble means and the usual way, Mary's conception brought about a being like no other being. The Christ, the anointed king that scriptures describe for so many generations, was finally here. And he was greater than David. He was greater than Solomon or any king who had come before him. This Jesus was Christ, the eternal king, the embodiment of God himself, the eternal, immortal all-knowing, all-powerful God had chosen to add to himself a human nature so that he might dwell with us and eventually suffer on our behalf to release his people from the chains of sin. We bring him law. That means we bring him worship and praise because he is worthy. There is no one like him. And so when we ask that question, what child is this? The answer is he is a child like no other. Jesus is so clearly unique in the impact that he made on history. There are aspects of that question that may never be answered. The exact details, bless you, of Jesus' unique being is very hard to understand. We've experienced that over the last several weeks. How can God condescend to become man? How can a mortal man contain the grandeur and the wonder of eternity? How can God who cannot sin be tempted like we are? How can he grow in wisdom, stature, and favor when he is already perfect and complete and knows all things? These are difficult mysteries for us to sift through and to think about. And while it's not easy to contemplate these things, the exact details of Jesus' unique being is at the very same time critical for us to understand. To worship Him well, we must know something of who He is. Those simple shepherds who came to bear witness to the birth of a king started their day with no idea what they were about to experience. It wasn't until God revealed this amazing reality 
that they began to wrap their minds around what they were going to see. So too, we must consider that God has opened our eyes to a reality that is simultaneously too big for us to fully grasp, and yet so essential for us that every believer must come to know it by way of God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And so we will not know the answers to all of these mysteries completely. The hypostatic union that we've been digging into over the last few weeks is really bigger than our finite human man's minds can understand. But we must strive to know it as well as God has empowered us to know it. We can only know what has been revealed and observed, and what has been revealed has been revealed specifically to us in the very Word of God. So if you've been a Christian for a while, I'm going to guess that you've probably heard a phrase repeated time and time again. You can't put God in a box. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that stated plainly as fact. You can't put God in a box. And what people mean when they say that is that your little human mind cannot put limits on what God can be. You can't define him the way you simply want to define him. But the statement is not entirely true. We cannot put God in a box. But God himself has revealed certain details of who he certainly is in such a way as to create a kind of thought box in which our understanding of who he is should exist. Yes, he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. That is absolutely true. And that reflects the the benediction that we shared for so many months through the book of Ecclesiastes. But there are things that he has said that he will never do. Likewise, there are things that he has shown us that he absolutely is not. And so today we will humbly and respectfully recognize the box, if you will, that Jesus has built around himself by his perfect and holy word, a, a box within which we might think about the union of his divine nature and his holy nature. The church, especially in the earlier years of its existence, would occasionally come to a crisis of understanding in which disagreements of how to think properly about God began to create serious conflicts and divisions among the body of Christ. People would begin to think way outside of the box that God's Word provides for us. They began to think about Christ in improper ways, in ways that conflicted to what had been revealed to us through the the Bible. We can't just think about God any way we want to think about God because God is not a fairy tale. He is a personal being who exists and interacts with humanity. If we think wrongly about God, we're lying to ourselves and to anyone to whom we are trying to spread our ideas of God. So we have to try our very best to think accurately about who this God really is, not just who we think he may be, but who he has revealed himself to be. An example of this would be a man named St. Nicholas who was a real historical person. He was the bishop of a place called Myra. Um, He was born to very wealthy parents, and though they died when he was quite young, he inherited their fortune, and his love for Christ made him quite generous to the people around him. And so he began to gain a reputation for being uh, very, very generous in the gifts that he gave to others. He was also extremely passionate about doctrine. That's something you almost never hear about in regards to the historical St. Nick. 
He was, in fact, at the first major church council, the Council of Nicaea in 325, where a man named Arius was trying to spread heresy about Jesus, claiming that he was not God in the flesh, that he was just merely a man. And after hearing Arius rattle on about false doctrine, St. Nicholas, as he came to be known, had had enough, and he walked up and struck Arius in the face. I'm not saying that was the right thing for, to do, uh, for him to do. And St. Nicholas, it's, it's not who you think about when you think about St. Nicholas, eventually calmed down and repented of what he did. But the reason he struck out like that is because these things meant so much to him that he cares passionately about doctrine and wanted the true picture of Christ on display. He didn't want some distortion of Jesus being passed off as right doctrine. So there is a historical St. Nick, and he's not a jolly reindeer wrangler who routinely breaks into people's houses. That's not who he is. And I'm sure if he saw the picture of who he is displayed in the world today, we'd have some problems with that, because that's not the historical St. Nicholas. Likewise, we can't afford to redefine who Christ is. He is a true being. He has a nature and a character, and we need to understand him for who he is instead of characterizing him and making him into something we want him to be. So to meet these challenges head on, it was occasionally necessary for the church to arrange a grand council of theologically skilled bishops and pastors to drive deep into the questions surrounding a particularly different, difficult aspect of God's being and to attempt, as a group, to come to some standard conclusion that would help God's church to move forward together, united in belief. I just mentioned one of those councils. There are several of them. At the end of the 4th century and into the 5th century, there was a great agreement about Christ's character insofar as the church largely accepted that Jesus was both divine and human, that he had a human nature and he had a divine nature. However, debate was ongoing regarding the relationship of the divine nature of Jesus to his human nature. And so a theological group known as the Monophysites believed that Christ's human nature had been absorbed into his divine nature, that he wasn't really human anymore. Therefore, his human nature was destroyed altogether, and that a new kind of being was created as a mixture of divine and human. In the name of preserving the one person, they confused Christ's two natures. The theologian that this dangerous movement identified with the most was a man named Eutyches. And so in 451, the Chalcedonian Council tried to sift through these controversies and and come to some conclusions about the way that God's divine and human natures interacted with one another. Uh, this gathering of bishops and elders created an extended examination of God's word in hopes of hammering out a standard framework that they could uh, use to help reveal what beliefs were biblical and which conflicted with the scriptures. And so Chalcedon uh, condemned several heresies, one of which was Nestorianism, but also Eutychianism, which I just mentioned, and every heresy that denies the true humanity and the true deity of Christ and their proper union in the one divine person of the Son of God. On the back of your note sheet, I included a full, uh, full record of the Chalcedonian statement which came out of that council 
as a confession of the true interaction of Christ's two natures. Uh, this is, has become a standard orthodox definition of the person of Christ. And um, it affirms much of what we've been thinking about the last two Sundays. If you read through it, you'll see that it, it declares that the Savior has to be man. We, we've talked the first week about how Christ needed to be a, a true, authentic human being because in order for our sins to be atoned for, they had to be paid with blood. And that blood was material, it was real, and it had to come from an actual human. Because in order for a human so, sins to be atoned for, the blood of a bull or a goat or a sheep would not, it would, it would not suffice. We also learned that in order for us to have true mediation between God and man, that Jesus needed to be a man so that we would understand that he knows us, that we would be able to relate to him. And the Savior also had to be God. He had to be divine because this Savior had to be free from sin. He had to be of infinitely greater value than one man because his one sacrifice needed to cover the sins of many. And again, this mediation that happens between God and man is, is a two-way bridge. Not only did this Savior have to be able to connect with human beings, he also had to bridge that gap and be able to connect with God himself. And so the Chalcedonian formula presents to us uh, this declaration that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. And then it affords to us this section, which is, I think is very useful. And we're going to look at it primarily today. It's, it's the, uh, the third paragraph in the confession that I posted in the back of your notes, which gives us four negative confessions. And these negative confessions serve as theological guardrails. These theological guardrails guide our thinking and keep it within the boundaries of Scripture. The third paragraph, and I'm going to read this out loud, you can follow along if you like, says that Jesus is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures. Now, now pay special attention to these four boundaries he's about to lay out. He says, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of nature is being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God of the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Now these four without statements will set the tone for our study this morning. And they identify the four walls, if you will, of the theological box that God himself has built for us by way of his word, within which we can correctly think about the union of the divine and human natures of Jesus. So I've got a diagram there uh, on the worksheet that helps you to kind of understand that in like a pictorial form so that you can see that this, this is how we stay orthodox in the way that we think. Now, not everybody within those boundaries thinks exactly the same about the natures of Jesus. But if you stay within those boundaries, you're not violating the scripture in any way. And so the first two confessions are there to protect the individual natures of Jesus. First of all, the human and the divine natures of Jesus are unified without confusion. They are unified without confusion. And this struck right at the heart of uh, Eutychus and his monophysite heresy. The divine nature and the human nature of Jesus Christ don't come together to make one new nature. 
They remain distinct, though they are unmistakably tied together. Now, I know from experience with my kids when we're doing crafts together that if you don't have purple paint, how do you get purple paint? You take blue paint and you mix it with red paint. Those two paints had an identity of their own and then you mix them together and now you no longer have blue paint and red paint. You have one kind of paint, purple paint. There was some in the church who began to think of Christ in this way, as someone who was divine, but in taking on human form and mixing his divinity with humanity, he brought parts together to make some sort of a new thing, some semi-human, semi-God kind of being. And that is not how we can think about Christ. Jesus has joined his divine and human natures, but he has done it in a specific way and for very good reasons. They both need to retain their unique qualities. In order to be the propitiation for our sin, Jesus needs to be a real human, not just something like a human, not just the picture of a human. Remember what we read last week in Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, where Scripture records, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so this larger section within which Hebrews 10, 5 through 7 is planted speaks of how lambs and goats and oxen were not, a true, were not truly capable of covering the sins of man. The sacrifice that would truly atone for our sins had to be that of a human body. The false doctrine that Eutychus was popularizing had the human body of Jesus more or less like a flesh puppet of the divine Jesus. He was not human in the real sense of humanity, having a soul of his own and living as we live, but was rather simply a tool by which the divine person of Jesus shared his message. But Jesus was to the fullest extent human in order that he might offer himself to us. He was not a mere puppet. I like what uh, the Puritan John Owen has to say about this. He says, The Lord Christ as man, did and was to exercise all grace by the rational faculties and powers of his soul, his understanding, will, and affections. His divine nature was not to him in the place of a soul, nor did it immediately operate the things which he performed as some of old vainly imagined. But being a perfect man, his rational soul was in him the immediate principle of all his moral operations, even as ours are in us. In other words, when Jesus was walking side by side with his 12 disciples, he was experiencing life as we experience it. He was not just a shell being manipulated and moved around by God in heaven. He was present with his people. So in order to conquer sin and death, and in order for his sacrifice to cover more than one man, Jesus needs to be not only real man, but also real God. Not just something like real God, but actual, unique, holy God. Also, again, from last week, Hebrews 7.26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted Above the heavens, 
who is exalted above the heavens but God himself. Amen. Our sacrifice needed to be of greater value than just man because he needed to be purer than fallen man. He needed to have power over sin and death as only God does. And so it wasn't enough for Jesus to be better than us. He needed to be God himself. So we can't think of Jesus as the old Greek mythologies would have us think of someone like Hercules. If you've ever read much in Greek mythology, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, that kind of stuff, then you know that the Greek mythological gods often got into trouble by interacting a little too intimately with the, the human beings who were subordinate to them. And when they did, often the offspring of those interactions were these half-god, half-man beings like Hercules, who was mightier than a man, but was in some ways limited like man is limited. We cannot think of Christ that way. Christ was not a mixture of God and man. The person of Jesus, having an eternal nature of godhood, added to himself the nature of humanity so that he could exist alongside us. So he is not what the Latin phrase tertium quid would express. He's not a third thing. He didn't become something new. He remained who he was, but added to himself a true human nature. And here we are reminded of the critically important work of Jesus as it is described in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you've got your Bible, please open up to Hebrews chapter 12 with me. As chapter 12 unfolds, the author of the letter is reminding those Jewish believers of how the old covenant made with Israel, how it required them to stay back, in a sense, from the holiness of God. Where did God deliver his law to Moses? He delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses was alone on that mountain. There are times when he brought uh, his servant Joshua partway up the mountain, but everyone else had to stay back from there. In fact, if you read the Levitical law, there were times when it said that, a, that even a creature, a beast, who would go up on the mountain would need to be stoned if God was interacting with Moses while he was on that mountain. So there was a distinct separation between God and his people there. Only the prophet was allowed up. But the new covenant, which is, praise God, an infinitely better covenant, has solved that issue. And so here we are in Hebrews 12. Let me read to you verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to God now. You have been drawn near to him through Jesus. Friends, we don't have to hold back at a distance. We don't have to stay clear of the mountain and just hope that what's going on up there is for our good because Jesus acts as the perfect mediator for us being distinctly God and man, the separation that used to exist between us has been abolished and we can now draw near to Him. We can be close to our God. The veil that separated man from the holiest of holies, recall when Christ gave up His last breath, was torn from top to bottom, which signifies to us that it was the work of God destroying that separation, that formerly had existed between God and man. Through the blood of Christ, we can draw near to him, boldly to his throne, 
not only to bring our requests to Him, but, but to fellowship with Him, to have a nearness to Him that is signified between a father and his children. We don't have to hold back anymore. Now listen, if the divine and the human natures of Jesus were mixed together to make some new thing, then Jesus was neither divine nor human. He would no longer be an appropriate mediator to bridge the gap between God and man. In order to mediate between these two distinct natures, triune God and mortal man, Jesus had to somehow bring those two distinct natures together without corrupting or distorting either one of them. Well, some argue then, how can the divine being Jesus exist within the limited confines of a human body? Surely the finite cannot contain the infinite. And that makes logical sense, but it really isn't a problem because in the person of Jesus, his finite nature is not trying to contain the infinite divine nature. The two are coexisting side by side. Recall from last week that the nature of a thing is the set of distinct, unchanging core characteristics that define the way that a certain being exists. So mankind has a set of rules and guidelines by which mankind exists. A man is a person that expresses his being through the limits of human nature. Now when we think of the triune God, we have to think of triune God differently than we think of ourselves because he's so much greater than we are. So there is something called the divine nature, which is a completely different set of laws that no other being in the universe can have except for the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit are all expressions, personal expressions, of the one divine nature of God. But as you see in this diagram on the screen, the Son, while having a divine nature, is at the same time also personally expressing himself through a human nature at the same time. The Father does not have a human nature, neither does the Spirit. But Christ is the one that bridges the gap between those two rules of characteristic. And so as the divine and the human natures of Jesus exist simultaneously side by side, Jesus can continue to uphold the universe by the word of his power, while at the same time existing as a temporal human who must contend with all the limitations of a human body. We, we talked about it uh, two weeks ago that Jesus had to sleep, he had to eat, he had to grow, he had to learn, he trusted God every step of the way. So having established one border of our understanding of God's nature, we can now set out in another direction and see how far the territory spans. As we think about some of the essential aspects of God's nature, the characteristics that make Him unmistakably God, then we must eventually settle on the fact that the two obvious natures of Jesus must also be unified without change. They are unified without mixture. They are unified without change. Now, the question has to be addressed here. <clears throat> Did Jesus transform from a God into human form? There is a, a very um, widespread Pentecostal denomination called Oneness Pentecostalism that holds to a, a vision, an idea of the nature of Christ that embraces a heresy called modalism, which is the idea that God exists in three persons but never at the same time. God can be God the Father if he so chooses to be, but when it's 
beneficial, he can transform and become God the Son. But when it's necessary, he can then transform again and become God the Spirit. That he doesn't coexist at three times, but that rather he just transforms and shapeshifts from one person to the other. Modalism creates a God who is simpler for the human mind to understand, but it is not a God who is faithful to Scripture. Why can't this be true? Why cannot God just change from one form to another? Well, you have to ask the question. If God is changing from one form to the other, who's running the show when Jesus is incarnate? If God becomes a finite man with all the limitations of man and forsakes his godness, then the universe collapses. There is no one to uphold the universe with his power. Christ cannot stop being God in order to be man. He must continue to be God. How is Jesus now seated at the right hand of the Father if the Holy Spirit is also simultaneously dwelling within the heart of every believer? If modalism is true, then he cannot be two things at once. He must be one or the other. But the scripture plainly tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father while the Holy Spirit is right now in this moment dwelling within every human being who has trusted Christ as Savior. The Father and the Spirit are never spoken of, ever, as having taken on flesh. Only Christ is given that distinction. There are reasons why the Bible is so specific about these things, because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, while they share a nature, they are three persons under that one nature, and each has specific roles and responsibilities that are sometimes distinct from the others. So by trying to oversimplify the equation, the wonder of Christ is critically diminished by modalism. This confusion largely comes from a misunderstanding of Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now that phrase there, he emptied himself, has been the object of much controversy amongst theologians. What does it mean that he emptied himself? The word in the Greek there is kenosis. And so this discussion is sometimes called the kenosis discussion. What does it mean that Christ emptied himself? Well, you see that he, the scripture doesn't explicitly say what he emptied himself of there, does it? And so people are often guilty of filling in the blank. They will say, well, God emptied himself of his God nature. He became a man like the, us, and in order to do that, he had to forsake what he was. But that's not what the scripture here says. It simply says that he emptied himself. And if we are going to use context to understand the scripture, then look at what comes directly after it. What does it say he did? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, this emptying is an embracement of humility. It is not a forsaking of nature, but it is a humbling of Jesus Christ, that he took on the position of a humble servant, and that in doing so, he took on the likeness, the nature of man. It's talking about the hypostatic union, that he added to himself this humbler form, this limited form that was not as grand as his God nature, which he continued to have. But he was willing to dwell in that nature, to live among men like us according to those rules and regulations. You see, friends, one thing we do know from Scripture, plainly, is that God cannot change. It is not possible 
It is not a function of his character. If Christ is truly God, then he must remain God forever. That is one of the things that is so unique about God and that sets God apart from all of his creation as that God is forever who he is. If the nature of God by which the person of Jesus Christ has eternally existed, if it was by some stretch of the imagine changed by his addition of a human nature, then Jesus would have ceased to be God. And so in Malachi 3.6, we have the firm declaration of God's word that keeps us from speculating about these things. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Okay, do, do you need to have a theological degree to understand that? You do not. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What does that tell us? It tells us that God is immutable. It also tells us that we should rejoice in that fact because it is the immutability of God which gives us faith. It gives us a steadfast reason to trust in this Lord. If he were mutable, if he could stop being the good and holy God that he is, then we should tremble with fear, not knowing what tomorrow will be like. But the God we've come to worship today is a God who will always be what he's always been. He will not be corrupted. He will not grow tired of loving you if you are his. He's a God who will always be what he is. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? We sometimes get used to interacting with other human beings whose promises are not always very valuable to us. Be very careful that you do not transpose your view of humans onto your God because his word is much different than the word of your elected official. It's much different than the word of even your spouse. It's much different than the word of your lawyers. It is an immutable word. When God declares it, it will be so. Ezekiel 24, 14. I am the Lord. I have spoken it shall come to pass, I will do it. I will not go back, I will not spare, I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord. So this God who has power over us is a God who will work his will in our lives. And he will do it absolutely as he desires to do it. He will never move from the direction that he is headed because he is a God who never changes. It is this immutable attribute that grounds our faith. The fact that he cannot lie and that he has declared his intentions being strong covenants that we now can trust in and believe in gives us hope and security. It is this characteristic which serves as our anchor. And that is why we can sing that he will hold me fast because though I may not be strong tomorrow, he will not be any weaker. Though I might be confused tomorrow, he will know exactly what is going on. Christ will never change, church. The fact that he added a human nature to himself does not in any way take away from what he will continue to be and has always been. Jesus does not shed his divine nature in order to take on a human nature. No. Remember, this is a matter of addition, not subtraction. It in no way downgrades what Jesus continued to be, the true and unchanging God. It did not downgrade that, that he took on the nature that he did so that he might dwell with us. It was an act of love, and it was done in truth. Now, this is hard for us to understand, but we can see it in some of the mysterious ways that Jesus seems to be limited in his knowledge. 
Think about two natures existing side by side now and think about the answers to the following conundrums. Luke 2.52 And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. How does that happen if he is still divine God? It happens because those two natures are simultaneously animated by the person of Jesus Christ. He is always eternally perfect God who knows all things. But in his human nature, there is a humbling in him that causes him to interact with us in limited ways. He willingly takes that upon himself. And so he has to grow. He has to become wiser. He has to listen and take in information that he didn't have before because like a human being, he isn't born with all of it. But don't think for just one second that in becoming a human being that the Christ in heaven stopped being Christ eternal and that his eternal knowledge was, was lost. He's simultaneously true man and true God. And so in Mark 13, 32, it says, but concerning that day or that hour, speaking of his return after his death, burial, and resurrection, he says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, speaking of himself, but only the Father. Did Jesus not even know that he was, when he was going to come back, Jesus in his human nature did not know because he took on the limitations of human nature. But Jesus in his divine nature surely knew and knows today. He is not in the dark about his return. Christ knows all things. So if Jesus was truly man like you and me and not a mixture of two natures, how then did Jesus perform miraculous things? He did it the same way, and this is hard to, hard to grasp, but he did it in the same way that Moses did it in the same way that Daniel did it, in the same way that every person moved by the Spirit did it. He did it by trusting in the, in the Lord God. From the time of his incarnation, to his baptism, to his temptation in the, guard, or in, in the wilderness, to his preaching, to the performance of his miracles, to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension and entombment, or enthronement, we find that the Holy Spirit was Christ's constant and inseparable companion. To be true human, Christ lived on earth as we are to live. And so he was constantly in dependence on the Holy Spirit and constantly subordinate to what God the Father commands human beings to do. He kept the law, did he not? He fulfilled every bit of what had been demanded of God's covenant people. And he does so by the work of the Holy Spirit within him. So this is a great encouragement to us. He does this in a more powerful and confident way than we ever could because of his great connection to the Father. But we also, as we pursue nearness to the Lord God, as we submit ourselves to him, as we allow no other idol to come between us and our Lord God, we know that that same Holy Spirit is giving us insight, is giving us power, is giving us strength to do what God has called his church to do. We only need to follow the example of Christ and let the Lord lead us and guide us how he will. We want to be aware of, of, uh, of one condition. The word of God, God's scripture, can rightfully speak of something that Jesus did in his human nature as if it was applying to his divine nature, even though it was specifically only applicable to the human nature side of who Christ is. And this is called the, uh, uh, the communication of attributes. 
So in Acts chapter 20, verses 28, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the church of God, which he, God, obtained with his own blood. Now, God the Father doesn't have blood. God the Father exists in spirit form. God the Spirit does not have blood either. So who must this be talking about? This has to be talking about the divine nature of Christ, which is always connected to his human nature. There is no separation there. And so when it talks about the blood of God here, it's talking about the blood of Jesus Christ who took on the humbled human form of a human nature. God in divine form does not have blood, but Christ in human form does. So think about that. When you're reading the scripture, be careful to understand that there are a couple of instances where it's going to appear as though the two things are being confused, but we need the greater testimony of scripture to help clarify these things for us. Though it's important for us to think carefully about the two natures of Jesus as distinct, the next two portions of the Chalcedonian formula help to guard us from thinking about Jesus as two persons separate from one another or as some kind of split personality. And so the confession goes on to say that the human divine natures of Jesus are unified without separation. Unified without separation. So the Son of God and Jesus are not two separate beings. They are two natures acted upon by the same person. They are not of a similar will. They possess one and the same will. They don't have similar affections, but instead have exactly the same affections. Why would people be tempted to separate the two? The answer to that should be somewhat obvious to us. It's because when we look around the world and we see humanity, what do we see? We see sinful fallenness. When we look in the mirror, what do we see? We see sinful fallenness. We see everywhere that mankind struggles to do what is good and what is right. And so our conception of mankind is often tainted in such a way that we think that to err is human, that you cannot be human without the sin which seems to permeate all of humanity. When in reality, we spoke two weeks ago about how Christ is more human than we are. When he took on human flesh, he became what we are supposed to be as humans, sinlessly obedient to God in every regard. So Christ is the better man than we are, but he is true man. People who cannot understand that want to separate Christ from the human side of his nature. But think about the Garden of Eden. Before Adam and Eve fell into sin, what was their interaction with God the Father? Scripture tells us that they walked with Him in the cool of the garden. It says that they were unified with Him. There's, there's no hostility between God and His creation before sin enters into the equation. There's perfect unity. So when we think about humankind in that regard, then there's nothing wrong with Christ taking on that kind of a human nature. It doesn't taint him in any way. It doesn't create a conflict between his divine nature because Jesus was without sin, unlike you and me. Humanity without sin is what humanity was created to be. And so Jesus is true, uncorrupted human. There is no problem with uniting Jesus with a sinless human body any more than there is a problem with uniting redeemed Christians washed by the blood of Jesus Christ with a holy God in glory. 
which we all look forward to experiencing. The material, physical Jesus was not some teammate of the Trinity. Otherwise, we could not rightfully call him Emmanuel, God with us. He was true God in the flesh, united eternally with his divine nature. One last boundary. The human and divine natures of Jesus are unified without division. The human and divine natures of Jesus present distinctions, but they do not make Christ a divided person. Did Jesus have to live as a baby for a while? Yes. His human nature dictated this. His divine nature, however, did not have to live as a human baby. We make that distinction so that we can understand better how each of these, persons, uh, these expressions of the person function. By way of illustration, let's expand our view to the Trinity as a whole. It's been really difficult, by the way, in writing these sermons to not drift into the Trinity over and over again. We're just trying to focus on the one person of Jesus Christ and his two divine natures. But there are some parallels between how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit interact. Did God the Father die on the cross for our sin? He did not. That is distinctly the role of God the Son. Now, does that mean that God the Son and God the Father were in any way divided about what needed to be done to save men? Not at all. And we see a beautiful picture of that in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, as Christ has gathered his disciples around him in that quiet place and asked them to pray and petition for him. He himself goes to the Father in prayer and, and says, in going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here is Christ in human nature asking the Father if there is another way but at the same time absolutely submitted to the will of the Father so that even in the same sentence, without a period between, he confesses that he wants God's will to be done. His human nature, like ours, is limited in knowledge, but at the same time, because Jesus is still united perfectly without division from his divine nature, there is a sense in which Jesus does already know that there is no other way. The Spirit makes it clear to Christ that there is no other way, and Jesus willingly consents because he trusts the Spirit, just as we ideally should. So though the divine and human natures of Jesus are distinct, the person of Jesus is still 100% unified in will, in purpose, and affection. These two natures function in absolute harmony with one another, not independently or in opposition to one another. There's never debate between Christ's divine nature and his human nature. One cannot operate individually from the other. They exist in a perfect parallel. You might see sometimes in families where a husband and a wife are trying to raise children faithfully to the Lord. Now, moms, dads, have you ever experienced a time when your children understand that there are some differences between you and they know that if they want to get away with something they normally couldn't get away with, they know which one of the two to go to and ask. They avoid mom or dad and they go to the other one because they know there's a better chance of getting what they want from that parent. It's called the divide and conquer technique, right? You try to throw a wedge in between your parents and hopefully the one says yes and then the other one has to say yes. And that happens because human beings, 
Even though marriage is a beautiful union, even though we seek to be as unified as we possibly can be in those unions, we are not, uh, we are not unified in the same extent that Christ's two natures were unified. We are still in some ways divided. My wife and I are one flesh, but we are not one person. Christ, on the other hand, was a divine person united to a mortal person. So the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ are absolutely on the same page. There's no way to wiggle in between the two and separate them. They constantly want the same things together. At the same time, you cannot love the human nature of Jesus and opt out of loving the divine nature. You cannot admire the divine nature of God with no regard to the human. And that happens sometimes in the world today where people, they love the mystical Jesus, but they don't care for the historical Jesus. Or perhaps they see Jesus only from a man's perspective and don't want him to have anything to do with the supernatural. So they remove all the miracles and they just want to look at the teachings and the basic stuff that's more easy for our minds to comprehend. You can't do that. Christ is divine. Christ is human. This leads to a common question. And this is as we draw close to the end here. If Jesus was truly human, could he have sinned? If Jesus had perfectly united a divine nature and a human nature, was he ever truly tempted? Note the important position given to the concept of temptation in the scripture. After Jesus is baptized and his public ministry begins, that's really the beginning of his public ministry, what does he immediately do after he is baptized? Immediately he goes into the wilderness where he fasts for an extended length of time, and then is subject to temptation by none other than Satan himself. Do you see how important temptation was to Christ's function and role as our mediator? Was Jesus truly tempted? The scripture declares it plainly. Yes, he was. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted. But could he have sinned? The only answer to that question has to be no. Why? Because there is no division between the human and divine natures of Jesus. And God cannot sin. If Christ could have sinned, then he could have produced division between the divine nature of Jesus and his human nature. Jesus would be split in two, just as our sin split us from the God who made us until salvation reconciled us. Adam and Eve sinned when they allowed the deception of Satan to enter into the garden and caused them to stop trusting and abiding in the God who in every way sustained them. It was that separation that caused temptation to manifest into disobedience. Why do you think that the greatest single commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength? Because to defeat sin, what do we need? We need to be united to God. We cannot stray from Him. We cannot turn away from Him. We must be united to God. Jesus' temptation is preceded by what? It's preceded by Him spending 40 days in the wilderness being united to God in prayer, in fasting, in meditation, in love. By His pursuit of the closeness to the triune God, he was ready for the temptation that came his way. He was fasting in the wilderness, meditating on the Father and the Spirit, seeking him in prayer. 
And in Christ Jesus, we have a perfect picture of what it means to be man. Because we failed to be what man must be, Jesus became a man to redeem sinners like us. So did Jesus experience temptation? Yes, he did. Could he have possibly sinned? Be assured that there's no way that Christ could have sinned. There's no way that he can sin. He will remain pure and spotless for eternity. I love how one of my favorite preachers, Sinclair Ferguson, speaks of this beautiful union between these two natures. He says, The Son of God has taken our nature without losing his identity. The Word has become flesh without ceasing to be eternal Word. He has come to our side without leaving the side of the Father. And in the glorious mystery of his incarnation, and though his life, death, resurrection, ascension, reign, and return in our flesh, the God-man has become and will forever remain our Savior. What does the Chalcedonian formula accomplish? It doesn't really remove the mystery from the hypostatic union, but it does help us to appreciate the complexity of it and to think about it in ways that doesn't violate what Scripture says about the nature of Jesus. And until God glorifies us and opens our minds further, then we must rejoice in what he has given us today. Would you bow with me as we close in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for your grace among us. If anything that I said today is in any way against your holy and perfect word, I pray that you would strike it from the consciousness of these people and of my own heart, God. I pray that you would refine us and help us to know you better day by day. Give us a humility as we approach your throne. I pray, God, that you would give us a desire also to dive deeper into our knowledge of what you are. It is a knowledge that we do not deserve to know, but you have given us a taste of grace. And by showing us the beauty of your person and your character, of your unique and glorious nature, we cannot help but want more. And so I pray, Father, that you would give us a hunger and thirst, not only for righteousness in our lives, but a hunger and thirst to know and celebrate more the righteousness of the Son, which is in every way superior to ours. So we are grateful for the perfection of Christ. We're grateful for the humility of Christ that made him want to come and be with us and to offer his body as a sacrifice for ours. And we thank you and rejoice in the redemption that we have through that great work. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.